Uh, welcome to State of the State, the monthly roundup of policy and research for the state of Michigan, brought to you by the Institute of Public Policy and Social Research at Michigan State University and our friends here at WKAR Studios. I'm Arnold Weinfeld, Associate Director for the Institute. Today I'm joined by economist Dr. Charlie Ballard. Later on, we'll be joined by our guest, Dr. Johannes Bauer, Director of the Coelho Center at Michigan State University, to discuss an exciting project to increase access to high-speed broadband across the state of Michigan. Very important for our economy and, and education, so I'm, I'm interested to hear that. But Charlie, uh, we've been gone a little bit. I hope you had a good summer. Yes, yes. Because it, it's over, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Things are changing. It's, it, it, days it's are getting over. shorter. The days are getting shorter, yes, indeed. Uh, but let's let's stick to the to, to the economy um, because there's been a lot going on in the American economy. Fears of inflation, not fears of inflation, inflation, fears of recession, I should say. Um, yet people are finding work, incomes are going up. Granted, it's being eaten by inflation. Uh, Federal Reserve Board's been taking some actions to slow it down. It's all a very delicate balance. Where where are we? It is indeed. I, I want to begin with what you said, fears of, inf- of recession, because um, the first two quarters of this year, the Commerce Department uh, measurement says that real gross domestic product fell, uh, two consecutive quarters. Uh, some people use a, a very crude, rough uh, rule of thumb and say that that's a recession. Uh, that's too simplistic. I will say now we are not in a recession um, because to figure out where the economy is, you want to look at more than one measure. And also, the GDP numbers only come out once a quarter. We've got a lot of data series that are monthly, so that gives us more ability to to analyze things. So um, the the biggest one that says we're not in a recession is employment. Non-farm payroll employment has been increasing steadily at more than 300,000 jobs per month nationally. And this last month, it grew at more than half a million jobs per month. Um, the, the group that is kind of the, the gold standard for determining whether we're in a recession is a, a committee that's convened by the National Bureau of Economic Research, a private think tank. And um, they look at half a dozen indicators. They look at industrial production, which is up this year. They look at real consumer spending, which is up this year. They look at payroll employment, which is up this year. So the economy is not now in a recession. Why did GDP fall? Well, many components of GDP actually rose, but um, early in the year, uh, there was an inventory adjustment that uh, made things look bad, and also uh, business investment is, is down a little bit. But most indicators are still positive. So we're not in a recession now. Then the next question is, will we be in a recession six to nine months from now? And that's a question to which I do not have a good answer. Yeah, I don't think that anybody does, right? No. Uh, so what happened is where we have developed inflation, and we can talk a little bit more about that in a minute. But when there's inflation, the uh, Federal Reserve is required by law to try to establish relatively stable prices. And so they see an overheated economy with inflation, and it's their job to try to take some of the steam out of it. And um, unfortunately, they only have a limited number of tools. They can raise certain interest rates that they have control over. 
they can do other things to restrict credit, but um, theirs is a is a, a blunt tool, um, and their job is to try to take the steam out of the economy just enough to slow down inflation without tipping the economy into recession. That is not easy. Mm -hmm. That is, a, as you say, a delicate balance. Uh, we know historically uh, the last big inflation that we had in the 70s, in 1979, the Fed said, we're going to put on the brakes. We're going to squeeze out inflation. They succeeded at squeezing out inflation, but we got a pretty deep recession. They squeezed everything else. <laughs> they, they, the they did a lot of squeezing. Yeah. Yes. yes. Yeah. I mean, in, in, there's, in terms of inflation, I, I note that last month's inflation was 0%. Right. Right. So uh, they have perhaps succeeded in taking some of the steam out of it. The biggest thing for last month, no inflation, is that uh, energy prices are down. I, I filled up my tank the day before yesterday, and the price was more than a dollar less than it was in June. So, Well, gas prices are down, but I saw something the other day where natural gas futures are skyrocketing right now. Well, the natural gas market has been jolted by the Russians uh, who are trying to uh, do everything they can to uh, resolve the mistake they made by going into Ukraine. And they're restricting supplies of, they're, they're a big natural gas producer, and they're restricting the supplies of natural gas to Europe in the hopes that the, the European countries will, will fold. Um, I actually don't think that's going to happen. Uh, I mean, um, you know, you've got a dozen countries that joined NATO uh, since the fall of the Soviet Union. And why did they do that? They didn't have to. They they do it, did it because they were afraid of Russia. Mm -hmm. And if there was anything to convince you that you should be afraid of Russia, <laughs> this, this, happened. It, it, happened. it happened. So inflation is real. That, that That's true. Yes. But I was reading something the other day where recession is also impacted by consumer attitudes. And recession is a bit of a state of mind, isn't it? Oh, it is. I, I, you know, so much of economics is psychology. If people are optimistic, they tend to spend more money. If they're pessimistic, they tend to retrench. And, and so uh, that's one of the indicators that we have to continue uh, to, to look at. And, and there are a lot of people who are kind of grumpy and kind of gloomy. And that... that could contribute to a recession. As I say, we're not in a recession now, but it, it could happen, especially if, if the Federal Reserve's contractionary policies bite more. And I have a theory, I think it's true, that politics plays a role in that as well. We have midterm elections coming up in November. Uh, the party in power in Congress, the Democrats, are you know going to be blamed for every every mistake, everything wrong, everything bad that's going on right now. And so we have uh, other politicians that are using this moment of high inflation uh, to stoke fear. Um, and so that's playing a role as well. Uh, no doubt. Now, whether that, that, uh, that strategy will work, I'm, I'm not sure. That is a very standard strategy. It's always true that the party out of power blames the party in power for for everything, mm -hmm. in, in, including, um, you know, uh, dental implants <laughs> and, uh, and crabgrass. Um, so uh, uh, we'll, we'll see. Uh, there, are, there are a lot of cross currents in this election. Uh, historically, you would expect the Democrats not to do well. 
However, the vote on abortion in Kansas suggests that that is a, a, an issue that does not bode well for Republicans. So we'll, we'll see how it goes. Let's get back to a moment uh, for it, to the inflation right. in, in, in inflation issue. I mean, I, I'm interested to, uh, to get your perspective on, you know, I, I know you said you, you don't know if we're going to be in a recession. Right. But it seems to me that, you know, part of the inflation issue that we're forgetting about is lingering from COVID. And that's the supply chain issue. Right. And so are we going to figure that out? I mean, it's been over two years now. And we still can't seem to figure out supply chain. Well, we've made some uh, real progress. Uh, some of the supply chains that were broken two and a half years ago have been kind of put back together. But uh, it's it's an ongoing uh, challenge. Um, it, you know, taking a, looking back... Um, for me, the surprise is not that we have had inflation this year. It's that we didn't have more inflation in a whole bunch of years in the past 40 years. Because the Congresses and the presidents have been, in most years, following what I consider to be irresponsible fiscal policies by running enormous government budget deficits. Um, and on top of, of all of the deficits that were already there, we had a huge tax cut five years ago. And yet that didn't create inflation. Um, and the reason that all of that stimulus didn't create inflation is that the supply chain miraculously kept up. It kept up through uh, in advanced logistical supply chain techniques of tracking with barcodes and all that exactly what's going on. It, it, it kept up with um, high-speed internet, which is one of the things we're going to be talking about in, in a little bit. It kept up with fracking. It, you may or may not like fracking because of the environmental issues, but the United States doubled its output of petroleum. And it supply kept up because of this globalization. And we have a whole bunch of things that you can buy at Home Depot that were there's a component made in Vietnam and a component made in China, and it was assembled somewhere. Um, the problem is that that intricate supply chain doesn't work very well when there's a major disruption like COVID. Worldwide disruption. Worldwide disruption. And, um, you know, ju just uh, uh, looking ahead to the, to the future, one thing that's that has already disrupted the global supply chain this year that has nothing to do with COVID is climate-related disruptions. Uh, we've seen several in the United States. If there's a major hurricane on the Gulf Coast, that will have major effects. And right now, we're getting temperatures of 110 degrees in central China, and that also is messing up the mm -hmm. supply chain. It's a small world after all, isn't it? It, it is. It is a, a, well, we made it a very small world. Mm -hmm. In, in ways that worked fabulously for a few decades, but that don't work so well in, with some of the problems that we're now encountering. One of the other uh, factors uh, that has been noted in the argument regarding inflation is the economic stimulus programs that we've had. That's right. What, what impact have they had? Have they added to inflation? I believe they have. Uh, I mentioned the, the, the tax cut from five years ago, which um, since it was passed by a Republican Congress and signed by a Republican president, they don't like to use the word stimulus. Uh, they, they used a different language, to, uh, uh, but, but it was basically a stimulus, and it stomped on the accelerator. And yet, for the reasons that I just discussed, it 
didn't uh, create inflation. Um, but, but then we had the supply chain disruptions of COVID, and then we had massive stimulus. Um, and I, I think that a lot of that was well-intentioned and probably d- did some good, but it wasn't targeted sufficiently. We had families with incomes way up around 200,000 who were getting stimulus checks. And, and if I had been in charge, I would have had it much more narrowly focused on those who were truly needy. Um, that's hard to do because they wanted to get the money out really fast. Mm-hmm. But I think what happened was you got, well, after all, in the, a year ago, the federal government ran a budget deficit of $3 trillion. Unprecedented. Uh, that what that does is it's putting more money in people's pocket and not taking it out of their pocket through taxes. So people had a ton of money to spend. And during the worst months of COVID, there were only a few things that you could spend on. You know, historically, the notion of mm. stimulus checks mm. is, hey, honey, look, we got this check from the government. Let's go to Las Vegas. No, Two years ago, nobody was going to Las Vegas. Mm -hmm. Nobody was going anywhere. So there were all these restrictions on what you could spend on. So there was massive demand on exercise bikes and and other and furniture and home improvements. And, you know, that kind of bullwhip whiplash for the economy is just very hard uh, to take without some disruptions. And what we got was a strong demand, strangled supply. And that is a formula for inflation. Very good. Charlie, as always, grateful for your insight and perspectives in uh, having our audience understand what's what's coming on before it. I'd, I'd like to move uh, to Dr. Bauer, um, who's actually no stranger to our program. Uh, he's appeared in the past to discuss groundbreaking research on the impact of lack of broadband access for K-12 students in Michigan. And before I, I turn it over uh, to Johannes, I, I'd like to throw some numbers at our audience. Michigan is currently ranked 33rd nationally in the country in terms of broadband connectivity. And here are some others, 47%, 30%, and 23%. These are the percentages of K-12 students in rural, urban, and suburban areas, respectively, that lack access to high-speed Internet access. So it is a problem no matter where you live in the state. It was exacerbated by COVID. It certainly showed our gaps. But it's against this backdrop that MSU has now received funding from the federal government to enable open access to broadband services to all Michiganders. Dr. Bauer, welcome back. Tell us about the program. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be back here. Just to add a couple more numbers to what just quoted, uh, when the pandemic started, Michigan State University did a survey to understand how our students did in terms of online connectivity and how well they could participate in in our online education that we were forced to to do. And we found that 16% of our undergraduate students had insufficient access or didn't have the devices necessary to to participate in education. We were actually surprised by it. We thought that number would be much smaller, but it meant that a large share of our student population was not able to really learn and continue to learn under these conditions. And um, as, as you uh, pointed out, the state of Michigan also is suffers some great discrepancies. There's about a third of Michigan households and citizens currently do not have uh, sufficient 
connectivity to participate in the economy. Mm. Just to come back to Charlie's topic, right? It's it's I think it it's worthwhile pointing out that the internet scaled very well during the pandemic, right? It it held up very well in many ways, and that's a testimony to private investors who had invested in, in large parts of the infrastructure. But it also did so in a very unequal way, right? It excluded many parts of the population, and the the whether it's the K through twelve uh, students or or our graduate students and undergraduate students or people who could not participate in the economy or or uh, take care of government or healthcare services. And it's about time that we do something to to close that gap once and for all. And and um, the infrastructure act that was passed last year. Uh, earmarks a considerable amount of money to close the gap. And actually, overall, it will be sufficient to across the nation to close those digital divides, at least the access divide. There's others that we can maybe discuss in a few, few moments uh, that will need more investment and more, more effort uh, over time. But the access divide, we have a chance to close. And the project that, uh, that you mentioned uh, called Moonlight, which is an acronym, and I should actually <laughs> read what it stands for. Of course it's an acronym. Michigan Open Optical Network Leveraging Innovation to Get High-Speed Technology. Wow. Uh, right. So the idea is to, to um, if you imagine the Internet, this is, is not an, an accurate analogy, but it's, it's probably good enough uh, to explain how it works. Right? There's on-ramps like in, in the highway systems and there's off-ramps. This is essentially the the network connection that every individual user has to to more powerful, bigger pipes of the network, and then there's the highway system right, that connects uh, individuals to the service that they need to access. For example, somebody who lives in the Upper Peninsula might need to tie into a server at Michigan State University to to uh, participate in education. Uh, these are the servers that um, help people apply for jobs, government services, uh, healthcare services, and so forth. Some of those are very close to the user. So, for example, Netflix uh, puts its servers very close to users, so you, you don't need a lot of Internet. But most of them, actually, that are relevant for our current uses of the Internet, and, and especially those that are productive uses that help the economy uh, hum and grow and mm-hmm. so forth, and, and that push innovation, they are not local. And therefore, to have a good sort of well-functioning highway system in place is important. And it turns out that uh, this, what is called the middle mile in internet lingo, that part of the network is a constraint in many states. It, it has not sufficient capacity to support end users uh, to reach There's those destinations. There's not enough lanes, so to speak, There's on not the enough highway. lanes, right? And so what our project Moonlight uh, does for the state of Michigan is it adds uh, a considerable number of additional lanes to the middle mile network. And that has big ripple effects on the on the end users because now the the local, uh, what are called internet service providers, whether they are private, or public, or or cooperative, nonprofit, they now have an opportunity to connect end users cheap, more cheaply, and uh, to a higher quality network, right? and that will really enhance uh, their opportunities to provide services. Uh, that will lower the prices of providing services to end users, uh, and hopefully be a major, major contribution to closing those discrepancies that you mentioned. How, what's the technology or the infrastructure that's actually going to be put in place to increase those lanes? What, what can people expect? Are these uh, more towers? Are they boxes on the side of the road? What, what are we, are we going to see, see things like that? Yeah, so th- th- that part of the network already has been a fiber optical network for a long time. So fiber optical strands 
having uncanny high capacity to carry uh, signals. And, and uh, technology actually enables us to squeeze more and more information over those fibers. So, for example, the first generation of fiber used only white light. And so you, you would use lasers to, to modulate that white light and, and send it across uh, the networks. They had high capacity, but we learned later on that we could actually use other colors. We could use green and red and blue lights and then multiply essentially the same, the same pipe now could carry four times, 10 times as much. Uh, and the technology, the electronics to, to uh, use those fiber optical connections has advanced significantly. And so the current infrastructure was, was actually, for most part of it, put in place probably 10, 10 to 15 years ago. And uh, it has held up uh, quite well, but now it's time to up, uplift it, so to speak, right, okay. and increase its capacity. The people will not see very much of it because the fiber that connects locations uh, will not change, actually. What will change is in 103 locations across the state, the electronics feeding into that fiber okay. system of, 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 of highways, if you wish, uh, will change and will be much more capable and will provide much uh, more advanced services to, to the local internet service providers. The, the funding from the National Telecommunications and Information Administration, which is the, an agency in the Department of Commerce, um, is about 40% of the total cost of investment. Uh, Michigan State University partnered in this case with uh, Merit Network. Merit Network is a nonprofit uh, research and education network that is uh, was established by uh, major research universities in the state and is currently governed and, and owned by 12 four-year universities in the state. So in the, it's a, it connects essentially anchor institutions, libraries, schools, uh, and others uh, across the state, but it also makes its services available in this new model to everybody else, private, public, as I said before. So it will really benefit the whole uh, ecosystem of players uh, in that, in that uh, internet access system. And by improving the infrastructure in these 103 locations that you know, Merit will be able to spread their wings, so to speak, across the state and, and, uh, and, and be able to provide greater services to those internet service providers who then can hook up individuals or, or businesses at the, at the local level. Yeah, exactly. And we have uh, Michigan State and our center has a long history of collaborating with Merit. We, have, we did uh, studies with them on, on, on the use of wireless services, for example, in the access networks. And we, we did the study that you mentioned about um, uh, the repercussions of mm -hmm. uh, discrepancies in broadband connectivity for the, for the K through 12 our school system. And we have worked uh, for a long time with them to help communities in Michigan map the availability of, of digital assets. And uh, the, for historical reasons that we could go into, but probably don't need to, the federal maps that exist as to who has access to broadband and who is not were highly inaccurate. We knew from the beginning. It's a polite way of saying it. Johannes, thank you. <laughs> yeah, we, we were we knew from the beginning that they were inaccurate, and it's it's one of those things where you were sort of some pragmatic statistical decisions were made, but the effect was that they overestimated grossly, uh, in many cases by thirty to fifty percent, the availability of broadband internet infrastructure. Right, and unfortunately, subsequent funding programs were tied to those statistics. Right now, now you have a gross misallocation. 
uh, of public subsidies, right? Going to the wrong places and not going to places that need it. So we helped for the last three years. Uh, it's, I think it's now 11 communities, 11 counties, uh, to come up with more accurate maps. But 25% of the Michigan population, I think it's actually quite a, you know, a significant share, who now have a more accurate inventory as to what are those patches of land where there's no uh, sufficiently high-quality service available, where are those areas that, that are sufficiently served. And how does this fold into the new office that the state has created? The, I believe it's called the My High Speed Broadband Internet Office. I mean, um, I know Eric Frederick, uh, who's been involved in this as, as long as any of us as well across the state, uh, is now running that office. What's the relationship there? How will you be collaborating with that office? Yeah, I'm actually excited about about that uh, that office. It's 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 very timely. We know from the experience across the country that that states who have a designated office to coordinate those many activities, um, and also the additional federal programs that are currently uh, underway do better than those who don't have such an such an office and um we we offer our services to eric as a as a non-partisan uh research institution um and in fact i think the other universities across the state would be happy to to help them as well and work with them to really create uh maybe a an evidentiary basis um help them uh, think through sort of some of the challenges to overcome digital divides. Digital divides actually have multiple layers, right? I mean, we, we commonly think about it in a simplistic way. We think about it as an access divide. You know, somebody who has access and not access or access and insufficient access. But there's really other layers, right? I mean, access alone doesn't really mm-hmm. enable you to, to use the technology uh, to the benefit of society. And so there's a, there's a digital literacy uh, pro- problem and, and digital literacy is very unevenly distributed across the population, and it to some degree maps onto access, but not completely. Right, there's other issues in play. What even if you have literacy in play, we also need to think about how we design our systems. Right, I mean, I can have a financial uh, system that I make accessible through online banking, for example, um, but we have to really be careful that we design it for all user groups, that it's inclusive so that people with who are differently abled or people who have visual impairments or, or oral impairments, right? I mean, they're sort of able to actually access this. And, and a lot of our technology currently is designed for very capable, you know, young individuals. Mm-hmm. And, and so there's major awareness issues that we need to overcome. We call it human-centric design. And this, this goes through all the, the things that we do with digital technology from from healthcare to education, uh, you know, to uh, government services, and uh, there's massive privacy implications, of course. And then, and, and the fourth level of digital divides is actually that we need to empower people and uh, um, train people to adapt over time, because as artificial intelligence comes down the pipeline and other technologies, virtual reality. And uh, digital technology becomes more or less black boxed into our lives, right? I mean, mm-hmm. it's there. Mm-hmm. We don't even notice it anymore, yet it has massive implications for our lives. Right? Yeah. And, and so we need to train uh, new qualifications among people. And, and Un- Michigan State University and other research institutions are well positioned to help in all those things. And I, I envision it, though, as a, as a co-creation. We don't have just answers that we want to give people. Right? I think we are willing to work with people, uh, have a seat at the table, and help uh, 
solve some of those problems. Well, as you know, Johannes, and one, and I've been involved in broadband internet access issues for the better part of two decades, too, going back to my time with the Michigan Municipal League and the rewrite of the Telecommunications Act here in Michigan in 2006. And I'm very excited about this. Um, and as, as you note, uh, it's important for our economy. It's important for everyone in our state. Uh, I'm of the mind that uh, internet access uh, should be considered a public utility, much like uh, electric and telephone were in the 20th century. It is essential for individual and uh, our state prosperity uh, moving forward. So thank you for all you're doing uh, and your partners uh, in this effort. Charlie, any thoughts or questions? Well, I'm going to uh, go home and get on my computer and use the Internet <laughs> after after we're done here. So uh, um, I do have a question for you, Johannes. Uh, it, it, of the people who, who I know who are either don't have good uh, digital access or are not literate in, in that, most of them are, are older. We talked about the geographic divides, but uh, is is age a big part of the picture here, or, or am I over overstating that? Age definitely is a big picture. So it's we the, the the factors that are in play here could be age, income, educational attainment, uh-huh. um, and um, all, all this play a role. And, and there's actually interesting experiences in other countries. So Korea for a long time, South Korea was was was. A, global leader uh, uh, because they had educated their aging population uh, to help them uh, go online and use our government and other services. Mm-hmm. And, and But they noticed in the past 10 years that because of the technological progress that happened in the meantime, those qualifications are now outdated. Right. And they also see sort of this, again, that the age divide resurfaced. Right? And that points to the fourth level of digital divide that we need to adapt over time. Let me just close with one other uh, thing that I would like to say. Michigan State University has in its in its land grant mission and specifically in, in our strategic plan a very strong commitment to equity and inclusion. And so for, for MSU to be part of this Moonlight project, right, we are sort of uh, the recipient of the grant, but Merit Network essentially carries out all the heavy lifting and Merit funds the, the remaining sixty part of that major investment in the state. But for MSU being part of this really helps us realize that land grant mission. And it helps us um, carry forward in a very tangible form and in a very important area of our digital lives, right? This, this idea to improve inclusion and improve equity. And that goes across age groups, that goes across geographic territories, that goes across educational mm-hmm. capabilities. And increasingly, I think uh, we have to think about ways to not only practice this with our uh, traditional students, but I think we will have to be part of a mission to create like a uh, K through 60 educational system that really helps people across the lifespan to upskill and adapt to the power of technology. And it goes both in, in the direction of taking great use, making great use of the technology, but also learning how to not um, act in ways that cause harms. But we do know that these are, these are sort of dual-purpose technologies that can be used for great good, but they can also destroy and, and, and be very divisive. And um, some of those effects happen 
not with malicious intentions, right? But we need to sensitize individuals and all the users to make sure that we truly harness the full benefits of digital technology. Well, as you note, it is a great opportunity for Michigan State University to continue along with its mission of improving the lives of all of our citizens throughout their lives. Thank you, Johannes. Appreciate your work. Charlie? Great pleasure. Any final thoughts? Um, well, we're, we still have a little bit of summer. We've still got some beautiful days ahead of us. It's been a gorgeous week. It's, it's, been, it's been great, and uh, so I, I, I wish you a, a good month until we get together for our next podcast. Super. Thank you, sir. And that's about all the time we have on this edition of State of the State. My thanks again to Russ White and the staff here at WKAR for their support of this program. Join us again next month on State of the State.